The Incomparable Podcast, number 109, September 2012. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm Jason Snell, your host, and I'm convening a very strange episode of our book club because many of our usual book club uh, participants are not here. Uh, Glenn Fleischman didn't read the book. Glenn. Uh, Dan Warren <laughs> didn't read the book. Dan. Serenity Caldwell, no. John Syracuse, a bit of a slow reader, John Syracuse. Here's who read the book. Uh, of course, Scott McNulty read the book because he suggested the book. And uh, we do, well, apparently not. I was going to say we do what Scott says, but apparently I do what Scott says. So I read <laughs> this book. Scott, thank you for being here. Well, uh, Jason, thank you for doing my bidding once again. Yep. That's I obey. And strangely enough, because we thought him actually illiterate. Uh, Steve Lutz also read the book. Hi, Steve. Hello there. How many how many books do you read uh, usually? Many? Are you a, are you an avid reader that we just and you just downplay it? This makes one. Uh, um, so uh, <laughs> this is the first yeah. book you've read. Yeah, it was it was a kind of a rough starter, right. but no, no, I, I I read when I get the chance. But there's usually I usually find myself. With so much media at my fingertips yeah. and so many other options to fill my time that I tend to not do so much reading unless I find myself, say, in a restaurant by myself or somewhere where I actually have nothing better to do but read. <laughs> well, you, tra- you travel, so I would imagine that that, I do. that, that happens, that you're in a restaurant yes, and by so yourself. So usually I, I read books in fits and starts, and if I don't finish it in one trip, there's about you know maybe a month gap, and then I finish the book and have forgotten by that time everything that was in the first half of the book. And of course, I read it in like one hour to an hour and a half uh, increments because that's how long it takes to sit and read a meal when, or eat a meal when you're sitting and reading. So, so that would be complicated if you forgot about this book halfway through. It's a slow and, and painful process. Yeah. Yes. This book, this book is a, a, a strange example. So we're talking about our book selection uh, for this episode is Cloud Atlas, a novel. It's not The Cloud Atlas. That's just like it's not it's not the Eurythmics. It's Eurythmics. It's not the Cloud Atlas. It's Cloud Atlas. Obviously. Uh, I know. By uh, British author David Mitchell, who is not the same David Mitchell who was in the um, comedy team Mitchell and Webb, even though same name, both British, not the same guy, as far as I can tell. And this was from 2004. And it won some awards, uh, was shortlisted for some more awards. But what's most interesting about it, perhaps, uh, in in this uh, year 2012 is that um, the Wachowskis and the guy who edited or who directed run Lola run are collaborating on this blockbuster Hollywood, although it's funded by Germans. So Berlin, wood, I don't know uh blockbuster movie that's coming out in, uh, in October. Um, Wait, the Wachowskis are behind this. Yeah. And uh, oh, and Tom wow. Tykver, the uh, the Run Lola Run guy. So the Wachowskis hadn't ruined anything in a while, and they decided it. They was, decided they're going to ruin this book. Yeah. Oh great! Yeah. So so but we read it before that, and as as Scott pointed out, you want to read the book before you. Right. Every character in it is just uh, in your head is uh, Tom Hanks as a shield against the destruction that will undoubtedly be wrecked <laughs> upon it by the film. It's Quite true, and reading the book, I have a hard time uh, wrapping my head around how this movie is going to work at all. But yeah, yeah, it's a strange, it's a strange book. Um, so let's uh, let's start there with the structure of this book. This book is is a series of interconnected stories, and yes, let's fire off the so- spoiler horn. <laughs> going to talk about the contents of the book oh spoilers contents of the book could be considered spoilers it's a series of these inner interlocking stories right so there's there's a story about a guy in like 1850 who's on a ship in the pacific ocean and various pacific islands there's a story about a british composer who is in belgium uh as the amanuensis is that how you pronounce that Sure. Sounds good. Why not? He's the assistant to a he, – he finagles his way into being an assistant to a, a, a famous composer. Um, 
Inside that story is a story in the 1970s in a fictional Southern California city about a plucky young journalist who is on the case of corporate crime. Inside that story is a story about a uh, a vanity press publisher in England who is uh, runs afoul of the family of one of his authors and has to flee and he's accidentally committed to an old age home by his brother right i'm trying to make sure yes. i got all of these a- yeah, inside yeah. that one is a story about a uh clone who is a genetically engineered person who's been engineered to basically be a waitress at a Korean McDonald's, except they put something in her food that makes her fully aware and smart instead of all of her other clones who are um, not particularly intelligent because they've been engineered that way to just be happy as servers. And then inside that one, at the core of this is a story about a guy Zachary, who Tom Hanks, seriously, no, I don't, I know, I know, it's crazy. I only uh, afterward I, I looked it up, um, which I don't. I, Wait, I, so he's he's not playing every character. Then. He's playing half, like half of them. And Jim Broadbent, I think, is playing the other. Anyway, Zachary, who oh. is a resident of um, the Big Island of Hawaii, in a post uh, apocalyptic civilization, has completely crashed, and there's uh, sort of chaos and, and barbarism on the island and they're visited by one of the last bastions of civilization in the world. There's a visitor who comes and visits them. Uh, and so these, these seemingly unrelated stories um, are, are chained together in this book. Uh, and what's stranger is they're chained together in this nesting configuration where you read the first half of all of these stories going forward in time. And then the last story, you read the whole thing and then it backs you out and you read the second half of all of the stories going backward all the way to the beginning. It is absolutely crazy. It is crazy. Which it turns out is actually kind of a bad idea because the first couple of segments are kind of slow going and not quite as interesting as the middle segments. So that you get to that, the, the last two segments, you get past the second, Larissa, uh, second half of the Louisa Ray part. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you're just like, I'm not sure I really want to delve want back, to back there to the, two parts. to the islands, especially. Yeah. So I I think that I uh, having read the whole book I found it fascinating that so there are these six nested stories and they are interconnected so the first story is a journal that the main character in the second story finds the first half of it's torn in half this, exactly right. and the second <laughs> so the main character in the second half of the book is it, it, the second story in the book I should say it's written as a series of letters and those letters are to the a character in the third story of the book uh who is in this uh Louisa Ray mystery which turns out to be uh, a, a manuscript yes. that is submitted to the vanity the, press publisher the vanity press publisher who Cavendish Cavendish, who becomes a a star in a movie. There's a movie based on his story. Based on his story. Which is screened for the clone. Yes, which is screened for the clone. And then in the the, the post-apocalyptic one, somehow the clone, I think, becomes like a... uh, The the clone story is told as her interrogation by sort of a record keeper and put on a hologram. And the hologram is shown by the the last representative of civilization visiting the big island of Hawaii. The little hologram is shown to the people there. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Wow, right? I mean, you can't fault the the author for being ambitious, right? It, it, it is it is a crazy chain of events rolled into a novel, and it's very specifically called, at least on my Kindle, it's called Cloud Atlas colon a novel, as if to remind you, you are actually <laughs> reading a novel. It's not just a short story collection that ends maddeningly in the middle of every story. It's a novel. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting that so the six stories are written in very different styles as well. Oh, so yeah. you can't – you don't get – he yes, doesn't f- let you really rest at all because he keeps changing not only all the characters and the storylines but how he is writing them as well. Oh, the first the first one is written in the style of, of, of the prose of the uh, mid-19th century, which is to say nearly unreadable in its it, it, style. It, yeah, it's a, it's a tough tough going first uh, 50 pages or so, um, which is when I, I suggested we read this book. I, I made sure to – 
point out to everyone that the first part is the most difficult, I think, to read. Yeah, I agree. Uh, which then makes the last part the least satisfying to read, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, oddly enough, I, I didn't think the first part, I didn't have that much trouble with the first part, which sort of shocked me because I, I recognized as I was reading it that the, the language was a bit, shall we say, florid mm-hmm. <laughs> and a little stilted. And uh, and and a lot of archaic words were in use, and uh, but I I was kind of impressed with myself because I realized as I was reading it, hey, I I know most of these words, sure. <laughs> and then uh, you know I'd run across some mention of some historical thing that happened, and it just happened to be something that I randomly knew about. So I think I kind of lucked into a greater appreciation of that first portion. If I got to that second part, and and because I guess I had trekked through the first portion of it, the second second half of it actually rolled even even quicker. Mm. It was strange. It was like I had primed myself, and then having taken a break and read through the easier stuff in the middle, I was ready to go back to it. And my my mental muscle for that kind of prose. Plus, there was the great was, the great cliffhanger where we discover that that the the protagonist of that section has been told that he has a brain worm that can only be treated by his quack of a doctor by giving him cocaine as far as i can tell here have some more cocaine you know it works yeah yeah and then you're left sort of wondering is he going to die and it turns out that the book um we discover in the next uh section the book has been torn in half and he doesn't know where the other half of the book is and only at the end do we discover that it's uh been used to like prop up the bed so that it doesn't <laughs> slant and he pulls it out of the wedge where it is and yeah how lucky for us he happened to look under the bed and find that second half yes it would have been a lopsided novel if it had, <laughs> last section if he had Timothy. found that yep. i never yes dear dear timothy or no no who was he writing to six smith dear six smith yep. i couldn't find the other part of that book <laughs> I shall never yeah. know what happened to that fellow who had been given the cocaine for the brain worm. Anyway, uh, life is terrible. Goodbye. Now, when you guys got to the end of the first portion and it just cut off in mid-sentence, did you go looking to see if maybe you had a misprint? You, know, you had Kindle, the Kindle yeah. versions, right? Kindle version. See, I, I was rolling around in the back trying to find out if page 41 ended up stuck in the wrong section of the book. Oh, it just made me uh, laugh. I had a similar I, experience. I just thought it was a, a, a crazy stunt by the... Uh, by the writer and then of course in the second when 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 the character in the second section discovers this and is infuriated by the fact that it ends in the middle of a sentence i I laughed again (laughs) well that's i think one of my favorite things about this book is that it's so self-conscious and it keeps making references to itself oh yes like i I think in that that second section uh, frobisher actually says that the language doesn't ring true in the journal yes Mm -hmm. so like he's aware that he's only partially researched what the writing should sound like coming from 1850 he doesn't believe that that it may even not even be true right i mean there's a question throughout about all i mean about accuracy because um in the uh in the section about uh uh, son me the uh the the clone um you know she's not seeing the reality of timothy cavendish's life and his being committed to the home and escaping in a wacky adventure sequence <laughs> that'll be perfect for the movie um she's watching the movie about it right so it's it's not as if the reality is necessarily entirely collect, connected and they, these stories i had i had that moment of wondering whether the stories that we were looking at you know are on one level we want to believe that they're all connected and we're watching in some ways like reincarnations of all these people throughout history on another level it's sort of suggesting that we're watching a stack of almost unreliable narrators going so by the time we get to to uh to the last one i mean we we've gone through so many different mediations you know hologram and movie based on a book and uh, a novel based on real events question mark you know and then and then the letters and then this crazy journal that that you've got to wonder whether this is all you know is is any of this real you know or 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 not it's crazy it's pretty funny but of course, as the readers, we're aware that all of these people are are coming from the the pen of David Mitchell. So I, I just yes. thought it was very uh, endearing that he chose to head off his critics at the pass by you know, openly stating that the language is wrong in the Ewing Journal. And uh, I, Timothy Cavendish calls the writing in the Louisa Ray book artsily fartsily clever at one point. Right. <laughs> so of course he's referring to his own writing in that section. Yeah. It's quite funny. And he he even he even has an answer for. Um, 
you know the 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 fact that you could reasonably say well the the Timothy Cavendish section is basically uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest with an old guy right or the um Sonmi 451 section is basically just every 70s dystopia flicks right. a flick all mixed together um but then he goes through this this uh this long well not long but he goes through like half a paragraph saying that he says, uh, the ghost of Sir Felix Finch whines, but it's been done a hundred times before, as if there could be anything not done a hundred thousand times between Aristophanes and Andrew Void Weber, as uh-huh. if art is the what, not the how. So he's actually coming out and saying, you know what, it's the, it's the how here. Right. It doesn't really matter that I've recycled <laughs> 20 different stories from, you know, from the past. The point is that, uh, that we're getting there in an in interesting and different way. Yeah, yeah, and I I've read a lot of different books in different styles, and I don't recall ever reading something that was as audacious as this, as uh, trying to connect these totally different, completely different genres, completely different time frames, having them connect in a bunch of different ways, uh, and then commenting on itself as it goes. It's you know, it, it's uh, Scott, have have you? Did this call to mind other things that you've read? I know that you have book amnesia, but <laughs> I, I do have uh, often have book amnesia. Uh, but I've read so this is in the kind of the school of uh, postmodernism, I suppose, in that it is uh, very cognizant of its own storytelling and structure, and it's uh, a pastiche of a variety of different stories, like Steve was saying. And so one of the ways that, you know, there's this whole school of thought and literature that there's nothing new in under the sun. So you can just kind of take the already existing components and reconfigure them. Uh, and the only way to make art is to basically remix other things that people have done. So that is what I think that he is trying to do here. Uh, so I cannot think of any particular novels that do it as far as he has tr- tried to take it um whether and so that that leads me to my own question for both of you so he is trying this we can agree that it's a very uh, ambitious novel and i wonder uh, as, as both of you as readers did it work for you or did you think you were he was spending too much time with like you know technical wizardry mm. and kind of trying to make it work as opposed to telling a compelling story or six compelling stories, I suppose. Right. You know, uh, I think they worked to, uh, to varying degrees. Um, I actually felt like, you know, some of the stories I thought I thought were really excellently done, and others I found less compelling. I mean, I honestly found that 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 first uh, story not particularly interesting. It got uh, there were there were some interesting moments. I think the second half was more interesting than the first. Um, but uh you know i really liked the louisa ray section um i kind of got into the the uh um the composer story after a while and realizing i was reading a 20 almost like a fitzgerald kind of um this this is a miserable human being that i'm i'm reading <laughs> yeah. a story of and when i realized that i wasn't really supposed to like him uh and he does a series of terrible things and it reminded me a lot of uh, Sorrows of Young Werther. Did you? Oh have to read yeah, that? yeah, 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 mm, yeah. It was very reminiscent of that, particularly in the second half when he, you know, he meets his demise at his own hand. Yes. And he's very romantic about the whole thing, and his, oh. of course, his uh, his epic dissing by uh, the girl, oh, yes. the daughter of the composer. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, so I ended up when I realized what I was seeing there, and almost like when I realized what the template was, and it fit into the template, and I said, "Oh, I get it. I, I see what's going on here." Um, you know, but the Louisa Ray mystery that, you know, breezy seventies, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost, you know, it's almost like a, I mean, there are plenty of examples of that seventies crime, you know, plucky, plucky journalist detective thing. Uh, that was really enjoyable. That was a lot of fun. Um, the Cavendish thing was not, it was okay. The son me section I really liked. Um, and the, and the, uh, the, the Zachary section, uh, parts of it were good, but it felt like it went on too long. It didn't get cut in half like the others. Maybe that was one of the reasons why. And I felt like I sort of seen the apocalyptic. I mean, it was almost like uh, something out of Paolo Bacigalupi, except not. Yeah. I think I think not not as good as that. I, I was reminded of Paolo Bacigalupi as I read that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's post eco apocalypse post apocalyptic thing, right? 
I got to read some of his books so that I just have the opportunity to say his name. Hello, That's fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bacigalupe. Bacigalupe. It is fun to say. Bacigalupe. You it's more fun it. than Mitchell. 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 David Mitchell. Mitchell. Yeah. So, so I guess, Scott, to, ask, to answer your question, um, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. I think there are some stories that I really liked and other stories that were, were okay. And once I realized what the premise was, I really was uh, excited. Um, when I got to the Son Me story, I was excited to know that I had the the rest of the Louisa Ray mystery coming up uh, <laughs> after I got through Timothy Cavendish, right? <laughs> and it turns out yeah. the Timothy Cavendish end is also a lot of fun because there is a whole, you know, escape from the old age home uh, plot that happens that's actually amusing, too. I mean, I, I should say we, we could make this sound like a ponderous uh, you know, just no fun. Oh, it's very serious and many experimental postmodern themes. And but you know, <laughs> there's there's like a you know a car crash at a nuclear reactor that's going to blow up and kill everybody. And there's like a old people escape from the old age home by lying and locking people in the in you know mean nurse ratchet types in in rooms. And I mean, there's lots of fun kooky stuff in here too. It's not all kind of no fun and and just work yeah and i think you can read it you can totally read this book without you know pondering all the different connections and just read it as kind of six interlocking stories that the author has chosen to tell for some reason together you don't need to ponder about you know why the the music keeps coming up or you know why the number six keeps going around or what which character is the supposedly the same character throughout the different stories if you just read it for the fun, as long as you get past the first part, in my <laughs> opinion, uh, yes. you, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for me, as a as a collection of short stories, I liked it a lot. I actually, um, I think I, I pretty much liked every section to, to varying degrees, but I, I, I didn't really find one that I just absolutely hated. Um, but as far as the whole interlocking thread and the, you know, the, the various characters and the souls, you know, drifting through time and space like clouds that to me, um, didn't work as well. Yeah. I, I thought it was, a lo- I thought it was very clever. I mean, you can't really read this without coming away with that. It was extremely clever. Um, and it was neat the way it all fit together. And I, and I enjoyed, you know, trying to pick out which character was which, but when I got to the end, you know, as as I got closer and closer to the end and I was ticking off the second halves of these stories, I kept thinking, well, at some point, the purpose for this character being the same throughout all of these times is going to become clear and there's going to be some big revelation. Uh, and when I got to the end, it turned out that the only thing I could really gather in the last couple of pages was I just slogged through a whole lot of text for what basically amounts to be excellent to each other. I mean, the, the great revelation. <laughs> oh yes, the great revelation is that Adam Ewing decides that he's going to become an ab- an abolitionist, and there, of course, were themes throughout of of uh, you know people of, of, of enslaving slavery, other peoples yes. and right. Um, but you know, so what? Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there, it, uh, right, it we're was, all it people, man, cool. and we're going to be here again and again, and so you shouldn't enslave other people, man. Right. But, you know, it was it was a neat way to link the stories together. I'm not sure it really was that much better having been linked other than, you know, the sort of experience of having seen him do that and gone, ah, that was pretty cool what you did there. But I don't think it yeah. really improved the stories in any great way because may, maybe I'm just too dense to, to really catch the uh, the overarching themes here. But, yeah, to me it was it, it almost I don't want to say wankery because it wasn't uh-huh. that bad, but a, a little bit of that. Yeah, I think it was it was on the the border. You could see wankery from where it was. Uh, <laughs> wankery was visible in the distance. Exactly. Yeah. It, it was it was a, well done. I think if 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 David Mitchell were not a, as good a writer as he was, as he is, because he's not dead, uh, <laughs> as far as I know, uh, this book would be awful. Uh, I think it is. I. I I really, really enjoyed it, and I liked the mostly because I like books and authors who are very conscious of the fact that they're writing a book. And right. uh, I like—I was an English major, so I like slightly pretentious kinds of <laughs> um, things. And you know, you can you can imagine a lot of papers being written about the Cloud Atlas and the various linkings between all of the stories and what the characters are and who they represent and you know what what the themes throughout each story are 
So it kind of spoke to my frustrated English major. So. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the artifice is is visible, and I'm not sure all of it. I mean, I, I so I love the TV show Lost, right? And there are things about Lost that were brilliant, and there are things about Lost that were painful. And that's what I was thinking of while I was reading this book is like some of the connections they make because in Lost you always had these these crosses where you know it turns out they knew somebody who knew that the other character when they before they got to the island right and in this there there's that same thing it's like these coincidences or are they uh, and some of them I actually really loved and others I just went yeah okay you know you're, you you got to do it that's what this book is so you're going to make the connection but like the the i love louisa ray trying to find the cloud atlas record that mm-hmm. was composed by the guy in the previous story that was very lost i i I, I, I love and, that though and that music was playing in the uh that's the music that plays in the cafe of uh son me oh you know i i don't think i even noticed that well, yeah. and she also passes by the prophetess as she's heading towards uh, Six Smith's boat moored in the harbor. Yes. The Adam Ewing ship. So, I mean, that, all that stuff is cool. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I like that. And I liked the, I liked the, that the, the sextet, and of course the sextet is described as being these six different pieces for six different instruments that are then played in these interlocking things and they, they start and, and then they, and he's describing the structure of the book. Right. I mean, right. The book is the Cloud Atlas sextet that is, and then and and the characters say, "I this music sounds familiar to me," and that's the whole idea is that the music and the stories are repeating in these different time frames. And you know, I liked that the the I have a comet shaped birthmark felt started to feel <laughs> rather obligatory. Like, yeah, we're all resurrected later in other bodies, man. That was. That one didn't work so well for me, I think. At least, although at least there wasn't one of those, like, we were together 50 years ago and our love remains intact now in new bodies. And No, there's none of that, which is good. But still, so some of it worked for me, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, and some of it I was like, yeah, okay, this is what you're trying to do. And it didn't give me that, that, that kind of chill as when Luisa Ray goes into the record store and, and the music is playing. Right. I mean, a lot of that stuff actually, to me, would have been almost unbearable, except for the fact that he clearly has good humor about the whole thing. You know, some of the other mentions of, of the sort of self-conscious references to the previous chapters, but also in that part where um, where he's where the sextet is being described and he's, he's talking about the structure of it and it is identical to the structure of the book. He actually says revolutionary or gimmicky shan't know until it's finished and by then it'll be too late <laughs> yeah and it turns out in the end that uh yeah it was gimmicky yeah. but it, because he noted that it's I, i'm i'm uh, i'm inclined to give him a, a little bit of a pass it was enjoyable to listen to although yes. a gimmick um I, I have to say i um highlighted more passages from this book than i've done any book that i've ever read on the kindle that, um that must count for something so, well, no, I mean, because I kept seeing was things. Was it because you were searching for meaning and you kept thinking you would be able to go back and piece it all together? No, it was really more that um, this is one of those books where you can see the author being clever and you want to mark ah. those down so that you can say mm-hmm. le- later, here are some clever things. So um, so I'm looking at my notes now. I was amused by in the totalitarian future um, – they make reference to two optimists translated from the late English, Orwell and Huxley. The implication being that in this corpocracy that is South Korea in the future, um, Orwell and Huxley are considered great optimists. They, 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 they predicted that what the society that we live in would come to pass right. when most people didn't. <laughs> Yay! It's like sci-fi. All, all of the apocalyptic sci-fi authors being uh, applauded by the people who manage the apocalypse. Thank you. You got us right. Yeah, that's us. Um, what else? Lots of cloud imagery. The cloud imagery made me roll my eyes a little bit. Um, I watched the clouds well, it has to be important, the floor right? of the kayak. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's very meaningful. I mean, the book's called Cloud Atlas. Yes. There's meaningful. pictures of clouds on every page gradually moving to the center of the book. Oh, you guys Not probably didn't Kindle. get that, did you? No. Ah, oh, see, in the in the text version, maybe this is the extra bonus for uh, for buying the all-text version, is uh, in the Adam Ewing section, there are clouds on the far side of each page. So, oh. uh, you know, to the left of the left-facing pages and to the right of the right pages. And then in each section, those clouds gradually move towards the center. Mm. Far out. That's crazy. And then uh, after the Solutions Crossing section, they either have crossed and are moving the other way or they're going back in the other direction. It's huh. hard to say. Huh. 
So, you know, there you go. Wow. A little more... Yeah. Uh, a little more pretentious mystery. So, so uh, when we talk about uh, <laughs> commenting on things, also, you know, as many stories I think that Scott loves, this is also a story about storytelling and about uh, uh, how, you know, what, what's reality and which story is the real story. And the the, the line that I highlighted that I really liked is when um, Son Mia snuck into this uh, movie theater because movies, or as they call them, Disney's, have basically been outlawed. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, in San Mies period, all of the proper, all of our proper noun brand names have replaced the regular nouns and brand names. Everything is a brand name now. The, right. the, the generic word is what we consider a brand name, and they're no longer capitalized. They're not no. proper nouns anymore. No, they're just regular words. They just words. are the words Dis- for that. A Disney thing. is a movie is now a Disney. Well, the hilarious thing is that it, that includes all movies, including apparently tentacle porn. Yes, that's a Disney. <laughs> There's a sequence where that's a Disney. Uh, what is it the the uh, the student that's got charge of some Somni four fifty one is watching? I believe the term is octopoid rapine on yeah. his screen. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, she's horrified. That's the, that, that's the first Disney she ever sees, right? And it's a Disney. Yeah, yeah. So so this is the part that <laughs> and why wouldn't it be that that uh, that I think? Uh, I mean, this is what he's he's getting at. This is other than be excellent to each other. I think this is this is really what he's getting at, which is. She's watching this giant strode the screen lit by sunlight captured through a lens when your grandfather's grandfather was kicking in his womb. Time is the speed at which the past decays, but Disney's enable a brief rec- resurrection. Those since fallen buildings, those long eroded faces, your present, not we, is the true illusion, they seem to say. So, you know, th- there is this throughout in all these sections, there's this idea of what is some characters even have conversations about it. So what is real? Is the future real and just waiting to happen? Or is it not real? You know, is the past what what's real and the future isn't? There's a whole conversation about how there's virtual pasts and virtual futures. And then right, inside the them the is plane. a real one, but you can't ever tell which one it is. So there's a lot of that. And I liked that. I thought that was really interesting because the beauty of that is that's the guy on the plane strapped with C4. And just after having those right. deep thoughts, he explodes. Right, He figures it all out. And then, and then the plane blows up. It's sort of like the the young girl in the cafe in Rickmansworth who comes up with the solution to uh, to everybody being nice yes. to each other just before the earth is blown up by the Vogon fleet. Yeah. And then also in that section uh with with Sonmi uh it's it's kind of it's very sad because all these clones are are made so that they can be servers and they are and served to to serve. And they yes. work for 12 years. And they they work for twelve years and they worship uh, whatever the the Papa Song, Papa Song, Papa the Song, icon. Yeah. And so he's like an evil Ronald McDonald, is how I envision <laughs> surfing Papa Ronald McDonald. He kept me, it kept making me think of uh, Beard Papa, uh, the cream puffery. Huh? Uh, but but I assume that is not. Uh, they don't probably do this to not. Their employees, <laughs> I would hope. No, because after twelve years, they they get to go to Hawaii to retire. But Hawaii is actually a boat that's been converted into a exactly. huge killing floor, and there they execute them. And, and butchery. And then turn them into protein matter that goes back into the Papa Song factory. Yeah, and so they could serve their the, themselves, basically, yeah. to their customers. Yeah. And that's very sad. And and, and it's kind of playing with the, their perception of reality. They think they happily go into this, this killing floor because they think, oh, I'm boarding a plane to go to Hawaii yeah. so I can retire because I've earned it through this, you know, 20 hours a day of grueling work and – uh, eating my soap or whatever it is they eat, I forget. Right, because they they the the clones have been engineered to not eat human food, so they have to eat this soap stuff. And if they soap. don't get it, they shut down and they die. And so it's their it's in every one of these stories, there's oppression and there's somebody who's extracting this method of control over somebody who's weaker. And and with the with the clones, it's this soap that that without the soap, even even Son Me, the the fully functional intelligent one, she still has to eat soap. That's all she can eat. It's crazy. Papasan Green is fabricant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but but the, the the sad thing, right, in that world is that the only the servers who don't know would be the ones who'd care because the the customers there wouldn't care because no. they don't they treat the servers like they're animals. animals anyway, so it wouldn't matter to them if they were eating their protein or not. Who cares? Prey and predators is is another big subject. I, mean, I I've got uh, highlighted true intellectual courage is to dispense with these fig leaves and admit all people are predatory, but white predators with our deadly duet of disease, dust and firearms are exemplars of predacity par excellence. And what of it? This is the, the quack doctor who actually is just a, who preys on, on the, uh, yeah. on the, on the 
the uh, the guy on the on the ship. Um, and he observes all this racism and all of these other horrible um, things that happen to the to the the Moriori, which are the Pacific Islanders that are destroyed by the Maori Islanders, and the and then the the white men are destroying the civilizations. And this guy is preying on on the Adam Ewing. Yeah, Adam Ewing, right? So he's preying on Adam Ewing, uh, but he has this moment of of clarity that really spells out in the last section of this book what is happening in all of these things in the book, and he's got it. It's the guns, germs, and steel thing. It's like, it, you know, everybody's pred- a predator here, and you guys are saying how the white men are bringing civilization to everybody else here, but that's not a, that's not what's happening at all. <laughs> you know, this is just people, and you're preying too. And he's got this very clear v- vision that. Uh, uh, is right right it's unfortunately this awful person who's done these awful things as he's leaving this guy for dead um is saying this that's co- something that's completely clear and that we've seen happening all the way into the future sort of but that, that there's that the problem that i had with that whole thread was that uh the, the whole thread through time is that there's not really a lot of consistency i mean i would have expected when i sat down and thought okay well let's let's see here uh adam ewing at the end, or the beginning, as it were, uh-huh. decides that he's going to be an abolitionist. So all of the future characters that are him should also be, you know, crusaders against slavery or, or predatory practices or whatever. And yet the next guy is more or less a self-absorbed dirtbag who sponges <laughs> off of the composer's, uh, you know, book collection. Right. Um, you know, and, and has gambling debts and all this other stuff and, and more or less dies in ignominy. And then uh, Luis Array kind of fits that mold, but Cavendish is more or less a nobody, right? Uh, you know, San Mi is again a, a bit of a freedom fighter, and then uh, Zachary. Yeah, but it's that's not him. It's uh oh, it's the woman. Marinim is yeah, Marinim Marinim is, yeah. The, is the incarnation in that one. Yeah, and she she fits the mold. But so you know, I I kept looking for different places where there were clear uh, similarities between all six characters, and I I couldn't find one. Mm. Hmm. It's 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 uh alternating if you if you look at the six stories, right? The first guy is a, <clears throat> a crusader, the second guy is a jerk, the right. Luisa Ray is a crusader, Tim Cavendish is basically a, a jerk. jerk. Yeah. Uh Somi right. is a crusader, and then the last but, one I guess is a crusader. But she's the that's the middle one. Right, right. Right. So you would expect her to go crusader to jerk to crusader. Well she is she <laughs> is visiting the natives, right? That's true. And trying to save Sort of trying to save, uh, you know, civilization and all of that. So, so she's trying to save her own civilization so, initially. Yeah, she is more interested out. in the, right. the technology that she thinks is hidden up in the the up at the top of Mauna Kea. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things I like about about that line I gave earlier, the uh, of about the all people are predatory, is that it's followed up by an observation that is uh, a purely predatory world will consume itself said in 1850 by our first and last character and that that was much more resonant having seen it happen right having us literally Mm -hmm. walked through all the way to the future and seen the purely predatory world completely consume itself to the point that civilization is completely destroyed and that was uh something i thought was effective about the story he was trying to tell and the way he told it is that he literally walked us to the end of time and then brought us back to something we would consider more reality because it's locked in the past to make that observation of like, the, you know, now how do you think about these stories knowing where everything ends up, which is there's no civilization and it's just savagery. And it's pretty bleak too, because even having destroyed the planet, they're still predatory. You still got the Kona preying on the weakers. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you've got that interesting uh, parallel between the Kona and the valley dwellers, I guess they are, and uh, the Moriori and the, Ma- the Maori. Right. It's the same. again, you know, they've got the people that refuse to defend themselves. Right. And, and who've and got their own little culture to... and they've got their little place where they make all the drawings down that nobody knows about. Right. And they're killed off by. Or enslaved, by as it were. Or enslaved. That's yeah. what happens. That's what happens to people who are good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But well, I, I'm depressed now. But I did, I did as 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 you're coming back around from the last story. Um, I, I I really enjoyed those arrows that he keeps pointing backward in the story. So, in the uh, what is it in the uh, in the Luis Ray section? There's a the the corporation that runs the power plant. 
uh, talks about how it's our country's rightful corporate empire. Um, the corporation is the future. Somebody says it's like, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I guess it is. That's yes, it is. Not, and it turns out so well. not so good. I really love that. I, I, I mean, I'd like to talk about the Louisa Ray section for a moment, just because it's great. She's this, she's this uh, journalist at this um, really poor, uh, poorly thought of, gossipy rag mm-hmm. in uh, uh, what's the name of the Buenos Urbis? Buenos Urbis, yeah. which is a. Uh, uh, it's like Sunnydale in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a Southern California city that doesn't exist, but is near Los Angeles. It's sort of like a fake Santa Barbara, kind of, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but she's... That's about where I put it. Yeah, so she's she's uh, she gets the she onto the trail of this company that's building this giant nuclear power plant along the coast, and it turns out that they're in with the kind of uh, military-industrial complex, and they're going to generate all these nuclear byproducts that the government wants and th- th- it's unsafe and it's going to, cause it's the seventies and it's a very three mile Island kind of story. It's unsafe and it's going to kill millions of people in Southern California if, uh, if it gets built and, uh, and the, the corporation doesn't want anybody to know this. And so then people are rubbed out by evil, you know, security guys who work for the CEO <laughs> and the chairman of the board and, and, and she's, you know, her dad was a cop and he died, but he saved other cops before he got shot in the eye. And I mean, it, it felt almost, uh, I don't know, it felt almost Elmore Leonard-ish in a way. It was, I, I just, I loved the, I loved the, that whole 70s crime, uh, not, she's not a detective, she's an amateur detective reporter type. And I love that. I love that whole story. And there were nice people you meet who then blow up <laughs> and are killed horribly by murderous assassins. And, you know, as it happens, that's good stuff. It's the life of a whistleblower. Yeah. And assassins really, if you're going to be an assassin, you should be murderous. Otherwise, you shouldn't do You're not yeah. a very good assassin. Anyway, I really, that was my favorite bit. I, I liked it. I don't know what you guys thought or if you had other favorite, favorite, uh, bits but that was the one that i liked the best and i i thought that was a really fun character i thought Larissa, louisa ray was a um the most memorable character in the book for me i liked her co-workers too the uh clearly i, I could almost <laughs> yeah. picture them with their you know their brown and orange silk shirts oh yeah and uh gigantic afros <laughs> sideburns out to here it just had, it had a, the whole thing had a, a nicely seventies vibe. To yeah, it. and you had the old, you know, old older guy who makes all sorts of off color jokes and doesn't believe that this girl can write a story, and it turns out in the end that he actually has a lot of respect for her. And oh, you know, ah, mm-hmm. uh, that was I, I, I just I, I thought that was great. Right. Yeah, and I like that whole you know that's the the other thing about uh, as you mentioned, Jason, about the corporations having all this power, and you know she's working at this kind of this gossip magazine and she gets this great story and she wants to her editor's like well i don't think you should you know write about it because you know who cares about nuclear regulations and unless it's going to blow up and there's going to be fallout and then that'll be good and that's all we'll talk about and he lets her go and you know figure out what's happening because she's plucky i guess uh and uh then it turns out that the the they figure out the corporation figures out what's happening and then they buy the magazine <laughs> so that she can publish her story. Yeah. They fire her. <laughs> and they, and they say, we'll buy the magazine and everybody can stay and keep their jobs except, except. for Louisa Ray. <laughs> exactly. Not let very her go. subtle, but no, not subtle. subtle. Not at all. <laughs> a lot of what I like in that section is how everybody is a backstabber more oh. or less. I mean, it turns yes. out that every single person, except maybe one of the, the, um, the, the protesters, the activists, is is stabbing somebody in the back or getting rich on somebody yeah, else. Yeah, and the corporation is not a monolithic evil corporation. It's a series of evil people who are all evil to one <laughs> another as well as to the general public. Right. right. They just happen to be in the same corporation. Yeah. I mean, even by the time the corporation is taken down, there's not a whole lot of it left no. to take down. <laughs> Most of the upper management has been dispatched by other members of the upper management. You generally don't have a lot of stand-up guys in the, in the big evil corporation, evil nuclear power <laughs> corporation that's going to poison in all of Southern California, mostly they're jerks. That's why they don't work out because no. they just can't. The evil people can't work together for no. their evil plans. That's exactly right. They but can't. See, stick you know, they probably would have succeeded had it not been for the predators preying on the other members oh. of the board. Oh. So, in some ways, I guess that whole prey predator relationship sometimes works out. Well, that's it? that's excellent. You could be an English major too, Steve. Look at that. What what go, what story did you like? 
Uh, I liked the Orson of Sanmi 451. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 451, boy, there's an obvious reference. Mm. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really liked the way it sort of gradually unfolded. I mean, each of each of the stories, just because of the way they were set up, sort of dropping you into whatever world you were in. The first maybe five, six pages, you, you know, you're just trying to get your bearings and figure out well, what the hell is going on here. Where are we? And I really liked the kind of slow way that unfolded with the interview back and forth with the uh, the archivist. And, um, you know, even though a lot of the sort of uh, classic dystopian um, tropes were in place there, just the fact that, uh, you know, you got a little bit at a time, you know, what are the fabricants? What is this soap business? And it, it got increasingly um, disturbing the farther in you went. And at just being fed a little bit at a time, it really, it, it almost felt like a really good horror story where, you know, things are getting worse and worse as you go. And yet you're, you, you have to see how it all turns out. Um, and then you have to say um, that, I mean, obviously the guy's writing is, is pretty superb throughout. I mean, just the, the genre exercises that he, he takes on in each different section. Um, and the way he writes is, is just generally amusing, but particularly in that section, it's it's kind of amazing. You already mentioned the uh, the uh, Sony and Ford and Nikon and Nike being you know, basically so fundamental that they no longer warrant capitalization. Yeah, a car is a Ford. But there's a lot of other stuff that he you know just just spelling. Yeah, he says a lot about the nature of this the dystopia that they live in, like um, for whatever reason they've. Words that start with ex, they've just thrown away e. Yeah, and, and they seem to have tossed gh out as well. Yep. And and my guess is that's just because it's inefficient. Right, right. <laughs> There's really no need for that useless junk. Yeah. Although there are there are a few words here and there that maintain the gh, so that that's not completely <laughs> throughout. But uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then, um, you know, similar to the corporations losing their their uh, their um, capitalization. They mention AIDS at one point, which has been cured, and now it too has lost its ominous capital letters. It's just AIDS, all lowercase. So I thought that the language in there was particularly interesting as well. One of the things that that I liked about this that maybe Scott uh, likes too is that seeing somebody who is a literary novelist take these sci-fi um, tropes take sci-fi stories and embed them in a work like this. Uh, I feel um, legitimizes the genre a little bit. It gives gives it it's a, it's a, a talented author saying I can tell a story like this too, and he tells a bunch, right? He's got an apocalypse story, and he's got a future story, and he's got a past story, and he's got a you know seventies detective story. But um, but there's par- part of it too that I like because it's it's. I feel like it's going to expose these concepts to people who might not otherwise be exposed to a story like this. And the Sun Me story is a really he did a good job. I didn't feel like it was a, you know, uh, you know, mainstream novelist who doesn't really understand sci-fi but decided to try their hand at it to class it up a little bit. It doesn't feel like that at all to me. It feels like he, you know, he he knows what kind of story he wants to tell in that genre and he does a good job of it. So, you know, right. I like that too. And he clearly doesn't care that he's recycling Logan's Run and Soylent no. Green and you know any number of other no uh, you know existing stories. <laughs> recycling Soylent Green, oh the irony! <laughs> Soylent Green is a movie about people. <laughs> I also like that uh, he doesn't go into any real detail about what happened to the dead zones outside of uh, Korea. But that that all apparently needs that needs to be said about our sorry continent is uh, he makes a fleeting reference to Boardman Mephi's American boat people solution. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you can only imagine what that is. It, it can't possibly be good, but it's, it's, it's good. just kind of funny. We're we're now boat people, boat people. and uh, presumably we the few remaining survivors landed in Korea and were presumably dispatched. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's never never good when you're a boat person. Uh, yeah, and I, I enjoyed that. And uh, Jason, as you were talking about the the science fiction elements of this, as I was reading this book, I was thinking, you know, this book is really, even though all the stories are not set in the future, it is a science fiction book because he's using these themes and weaving together these characters and this character just keeps coming back and back. And these are clear science fiction themes yeah. uh, and, and the publisher 
would never market this book as a science fiction book because it is too literary for that, and they don't want to... Well, it's currently being made into a major motion picture with Tom Hanks, so... Yeah, not science fiction. Right, but, but it's by the so, Wachowskis, but, right? Who are exactly. movies, genre directors. Movies, so. Exactly. Movies are very different than than books and you know the marketing of the two. Well, sci-fi is a mainstream movie genre. Everybody watches sci-fi movies, but not everybody reads exactly. sci-fi novels, right? And if you mark this as sci-fi, unless you're you know, even even actually somebody like Michael Chabon, I mean, he he <laughs> he he won the Pulitzer Prize, right? But and has mm. written many genre books, but even then, it's like, what's, some people are like, what's wrong with you, Michael? Why are you not writing? Why are you writing silly things about, you know, monsters and superheroes and things? And well, that's what he wants to write about. So, so they, they, this is one of those secret sci-fi. Don't tell anybody it's sci-fi kind exactly. of. It's actually a, it really a complimentary quote from Shaban on the back of this book. Yes. Here. Telling, isn't it? That, that's, I, I, I saw that and, and uh, I thought that was perfect because it, it's that, it's got that kind of feel. I mean, he's. He's a better writer than David Mitchell, but uh, it does have that feel. It's somebody who's extremely talented as a writer and is going to go ahead and play with sci-fi ideas uh, and doesn't really care if that's going to bother the literary intelligentsia who are like, oh, what? Clones in the future? No, no, no. We can't Scott, have have you ever read any other Mitchell besides this? Uh, no, this is the only Mitchell that I have read. I, I, uh, it makes me want to read more of his work, but I have... Huh. So many other things I'm reading. <laughs> you do get the sense that, um, and I guess this will be obvious in the in the movie that that there are multiple characters repeating here. Um, mm-hmm. And the uh, the one that made me laugh is that in the the second story, I believe there is a there is a doctor who is creepy, and we've just seen the creepy guy who's pretending to be a doctor. <laughs> and in the very next story, there's a Dr. Egret, who he says, I've never met a quack who I didn't suspect of plotting to do me in as expensively as he could contrive. I was like, well, yeah, actually, yeah, that, that just happened. Uh, in the, yeah. well, but is that is that actually a recurring character, or does Mitchell just hate doctors? <laughs> no. <laughs> mm, it's a commentary on the... No, it's, you, get the, you get the little sense that... The, that, but but it's 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 a little bit less obvious when when as opposed to in the movie when it's like why it's Halle Berry again, aha, yeah, yeah. I, the only uh, instance of that that I even noticed was uh, where I think it's uh, Bill Smoke is about to dispatch Louisa Ray on the on the on Six Smith's boat, and um, uh, what does he say? He says something along the lines of "You, do you always die this noisy?" Or something. <laughs> what do you What do you mean always? Or something along those lines. Yeah, there it is. Does death always make you so verbose? Uh, and Louisa says, "What do you mean always?" Like yeah. there's some significance to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. So presumably, Bill Smoke exists in the other stories as well. And some, I mean, this this reads to me like a book that I would probably get a lot more out of if I read it a second mm-hmm. time. Like there's, there are probably some bits in the first half Except for that, first that, chapter. that point to a lot of clues here and there that I completely yeah. missed on the first time through. Although I kind of like that. kind of time, man? I kind of like that it's, it's less, it, it didn't feel, um, parts of it didn't feel obvious, right? I mean, the, the, the comet shaped birthmark and all that, it's very obvious. But part of it, I didn't, I didn't feel like, oh yes, now I know who each of our three or four recurring characters is in this time frame. I didn't have right, that yeah. sense. And I, I was happy. I was grateful for that. I like the idea that there's some of these people are recurring and that's fine, but it, it he never spell spelled it out at least that I could tell and I I was grateful. I really was, because that, that that would have made my eyes roll back into my head. If yeah. It was that we're all connected like- and we go through this life together again and again. I, I didn't I, I just uh, I did didn't want this book to be that and it wasn't. No, that would have been thoroughly irritating. That book sucked. It would have been if like, you know, the character had a limp in every story or something. <laughs> I think it's an yes. interesting conceit, though, if this is a, a situation of sort of a soul being reincarnated repeatedly, that perhaps souls can take a break from actual terrestrial life and live in a book for a while. <laughs> <laughs> because presumably that's what has happened when Louisa Ray is written by Hillary V. Hush. There's no other particular reason why this character would suddenly have a yeah. birthmark. Yeah, that's, that's true. Isn't that weird? Well, and, and 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 uh, Timothy Cavendish is alive, is old enough that he's alive when when Louisa Ray would have been alive, but Louisa right. Ray didn't wasn't real 
presumably, but was just the character in the book. Well, it's not certain that uh, that he is, in fact, that character. Because he does, he makes mention of having a birthmark, but yes. he says no one, no one has ever made notice of it being a comet. Somebody called it Timbo's turd, as I recall, but <laughs> yeah. nobody ever told him it looked like a comet. Yeah, but that, that's one of, that's one of those really nice suggestions that that maybe you know what we're seeing is the connection that these characters have is that they're in this book together, and not necessarily that they're in some fictional world reincarnating into one another. Because in Cavendish's world, Louisa Ray is a character in a book not a person because if she had been a person he would have been alive at the same time that she was alive that's true and he would probably remember this giant scandal in america about the uh nuclear power plant exactly and people blowing up right so that that adds a whole other layer yeah the more you think about this book the more confusing it is but interesting (laughs) it's true and that's 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 the problem for me i mean i really liked the individual stories i liked the writing i liked the cleverness it would have been so much more if there had been some sort of a thread that I could have picked up. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's frustrating that there wasn't maybe a bit more of a hint. I would probably go back and reread the book if I had enough of an indication that I was just sort of missing something. Mm-hmm. But I felt like when I got to the end and things didn't really add up and there wasn't really any kind of a hint that maybe I was just missing something that you now, oh, well, here we go. Yeah. Did, did Damon yeah. Lindelof ghostwrite this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that he, as an author, is really interested in kind of, and I think this is good, he's not interested in kind of holding your hand through and kind of spelling out the whole thing. Well, there's a difference between holding your hand and just not really having a point. Mm. Well, I think he has a he point, has to but do, I don't I mean, think it is, I don't think that there is a strong kind of... Uh, uh, way that you can decode whatever it is like there's no yeah. hints to some like there's no pivotal scene where it's like aha it all comes together now it all makes sense right he well, wants i don't want to, to draw it. me a map but at the same time he's got to do a little of the work in coming up with the story yeah, it's not up true. to me to make up the story based on your <laughs> series of well, vignettes that tie together to... only marginally I think he wants you to kind of draw all of these connections because he casually mentions similar things in each of the stories. And, you know, just as you're reading it, I think you're just supposed to notice one or, you know, two of the things and not all of them, I imagine, unless you read it more than once uh, and just kind of get that kind of general, you know, everybody's connected kind of thing without him having to be have have to say like jason said like whoa we're all connected through life <laughs> we're all clouds in the cloud atlas yeah that's cool man no i mean if there if there is <laughs> something freedom it's at rock the, man at the end when adam ewing becomes an abolitionist right i mean that this is his moment to say and he sort of does he said he, he's to say not slavery's bad but to say um you know the strong are going to oppress the weak and you need and and that's bad and you need to do something about it because <laughs> that's the law of the jungle and this is where, where this goes is to the complete destruction of society and it's not just about slavery although slavery is part of it but it's about you know what he's saying is it's the this this corporate uh, structure that's out of control in ni- in the 1970s and the corpocracy of korea uh in the 21st century and uh and you know that's that's sort of one of the things that he's saying here and that's fine i that seems like a fairly straightforward straightforward thing but um but yeah i you know in, in the end i liked it i didn't love it um i'm glad i read it cuz i i i enjoyed the ride of not really knowing what the heck i was going to get next um <laughs> and my wife my wife said oh how'd you like it and i said yeah it was it was <laughs> It was strange. It was a strange book, and but you know, but I I ripped through it. I read it other than the first chapter. <laughs> then then it was speeded up. Then it was like, yeah, okay. Now that now that we're out of Adam Ewing, I'm ready to go. Yeah, but the the problem with the payoff of you know be be cool to be good to one another. Yeah, don't be is, dicks. Yeah, exactly. Is that the, <laughs> we're the all just history. clouds, man? We're all clouds we're in the sky, and and, and even when the clouds evaporate, man, they come back. There, yeah, we're all they connected. Just, they Sometimes uh, there's a comet. <laughs> yeah, but the so the, the wow. future and the past of this book are, are already set. So even so, the 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 person furthest in the past becomes an abolitionist at the end of the book, right? But it doesn't change the fact that the future is complete crap anyway. And everybody's enslaved. Well, he's just he's just one man or one 
entity. You know, he's, he's six. We're looking at you. I, I think the point maybe is, you know, if, if we all did that, then maybe it would make a difference. But if just one dude does, then you know, we're all screwed. I guess that's true. So, so we're case, basically all screwed. It is a message book. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> but I, I would say that I I almost loved the book. Huh. I came real close. I, I really liked, like I said, I liked the stories, loved the writing style, and there were, occasionally there'd be these little sections where just he would whip out with like two or three paragraphs of just really beautiful sentiments that, that come, come almost out of nowhere, and then he would move on to the rest of the story. And I thought that was fairly interesting, like that whole section where, you know, the guy's on the plane and he comes up with the past and the future, and I was like, wow, that is some pretty heavy stuff. And I sat there for a while trying to work that out, and... You know, it, it was it was a fun book to read, and uh, I liked it a whole lot more before before I got to the end and realized that it wasn't going to pay off that well. <laughs> but in the end, yeah, I would say that uh, I I borderline loved it, and wish I could say that I I loved it without any reservation, but I sadly cannot. The journey is its own reward. Yeah, there's reservation. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I read it. Me too. It. And Me I would too. I would recommend it to an adventurous reader who somebody who appreciates the you know you'll make the connections and the the different stories are interlocked but they're very different genres and somebody who really loves that stuff uh you know my, I'm not going to recommend that my mom read it you know yeah, My mom's not that adventurous. She's a reader but she's not that adventurous. Not. But uh somebody who loves seeing these kind of books that are about books and that are interconnected and and self-referential and all that 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 they would enjoy this book. My mom would like to read the would probably enjoy reading the Louisa, Louisa Ray mysteries novels, right? Yeah, yes. she would enjoy. Yeah, those. I would too, to be yeah. honest with you. Uh, oh, yeah. So so would I actually. But they were pulpy, but great fun. That was great. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you do read the book and you you figure out what the point is, please drop us a line. <laughs> I think you already got it. To be excellent to each other. Oh God, no, that can't be it. No, can okay. it really? No, I can't. I think yeah. it is though. I'm not sure what the point of the book was, except that uh, I enjoyed reading it, and I thought it was a fantastically constructed and well-written yeah. kind of yes. object. Many, and... many papers will be written by English students about this yeah. book. It's just I hate that it comes so close to being sublime. And even in those last – I got to the second page from the last, and I was like, it's coming. It's here in the last <laughs> two pages. I swear. And I got down to one page, and I was like, oh, God, it's not coming, is it? And then it didn't come. <laughs> Oh. Except for the aforementioned BX Adam Adam Ewing as the focal point of the beginning and end of this book is a major problem, I think. Really? I th- I think it it, it will yeah. turn it's a bit off of a, dope. a lot of people. I yeah. think. Well, and then and then in the end, you don't. I mean, I I actually feel like because like Frobisher's story is, you know, I, I got to the end of that story and then and then back to Adam Ewing, like oh, Adam Ewing, you know, I just it never yeah. yeah. I think it's a weakness because that that in, because it's in that style, which is totally mm-hmm. right. Uh, but it's a little bit of a snooze, and his big revelation is that he's going to be a uh, an abolitionist. And yeah, it's not it's it's yeah. not the strongest starter or ender. It's funny because I I think the beginning and end sections and the dead center sections are not great mm-hmm. compared to some of the stuff in the middle. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think the 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 first and last section are good in that they are well written and good, kind of um, mimicking of that style. But that the the story itself is not all that compelling. Yeah, to come all that way and end up with Adam Ewing getting off at the boat in Hawaii or San Francisco or wherever he ends up is not. I guess it's Hawaii because that's the you know that story ends in the same place that the story at the end right. of the world ends. So right. That's where the freed slave saves his life. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I, I, I am very glad that I read this book before I saw the movie, though, because oh, yes. I think that no, um, no matter how good the movie is going to be or how bad the movie is going to be, I can't help but think that it will ruin the book for anyone who re- who sees the movie first and then reads the book. Yeah, I think that's probably I've read right. some advance reviews on the movie, and they, they do not speak highly. Oh, dear. Sad mm-hmm. to say, but I mean, I'm honestly, surprised. what what could you do? I mean, you, how do you film this this kind of a book? Poorly, I think. There's no. I don't <laughs> think that. 
I don't. I can't. I can't. I do not understand how this kind of book can be turned into a compelling movie. So I don't know if I want to even see this movie. But I'm more intrigued now just because I read the book, and I would kind of like to see how the heck they try to make it into a movie. Yeah, I refuse yeah. to even watch the uh, the trailer before finishing the book. No one will be seated in the senior citizens escape the old folks home scene. <laughs> I, yeah, as I was reading that, I was thinking this 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 will make a pretty good movie yeah. section. Yeah, and there's a whole escape escape to Son Mi's escape from. You know, there's there's some stuff, but it's going to be uh, periods of of action spread apart by long sections of. You know, if the book is anything to go by, expository. So, what are they going to do with that? I don't know. It's, I, <laughs> it's that's painful. <laughs> I'm glad I read the book. I, Thanks, Scott. It boggles the mind. Yeah, okay. yeah. I am. I am glad that I. So my my wife told me to read this book like five years ago, and I ignored her recommendation. <laughs> then the movie uh, came out. And you thought, oh no. I gotta get to it before the movie. Exactly, and I watched the trailer for the movie, and I thought this is, sounds like it's a really interesting novel that's going to make an awful movie. Yeah. So I should really read the, read novel, the novel before this movie comes out. Good idea. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, and I'm glad I did. I'm sad that I only came across this book too late to not have the soon to be a major motion picture on the to- on the cover. But at um, least I avoided Tom Hanks and Halle Berry peering out at me from the windows instead of the lovely cloud pictures that I have idea. instead. That's right. Tom, Pla- Tom Hanks in the movie, Tom Hanks plays a cloud. <laughs> we all play clouds, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, yeah all, we're all Didn't clouds. you know that? Clouds we're all clouds. In the sky. Clouds need Drifting to be Drifting through nicer. time and space You know what's together. bad is when the mean clouds come and oppress the other nice clouds oh, and tell them where to go. Yeah. Sometimes Some we drift. Jerks. You know, sometimes we drip. Yeah. Good times. Other times we suck up the ocean. All right, this has been great, Scott. Thank you for th- thank you for suggesting this book that nobody read but us. <laughs> well, I'm glad that at least you two brave fellows picked up this book and uh, actually finished it because I do think that despite uh, some of its flaws, it's a a, a book that is uh, a rewarding experience yeah. to read if you enjoy kind of uh, out of the box reading uh, books yes yes if you enjoy but reading not so well, far not so far outside of the box that it was difficult to read or irritating to read which yeah. is nice <laughs> yeah yes exactly it's not like a totally experimental storytelling no, 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 where no. you have no idea what's going on there are very strong plot lines and you can follow them through the whole these book these are all yeah enjoyable. they're all genres right they're all recognizable mm-hmm. i mean many of these are things that i i feel like i've read this book before or something very much like it and i and i like that so so they're not they're they're not painful pretentious things they're woven together in a pretentious way maybe yes but uh they're individually not that and that's good it's like there there's a series of concentric boxes of increasing size Mm -hmm. and this is actually outside of the first box but it doesn't actually step outside of the second box so it's right in there uh, yes. C. The, yes, there there are six boxes nested. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. All right. On that note, I'm going to thank everybody uh, for listening, and I'm going to thank Steve Lutz and Scott McNulty for reading the book. Yay. You Ooh. read the book. Yay Ooh. for us. Hooray. I'm glad I did. And now I can go back to doing other things. And I'm glad that you both uh, liked it because yeah. I was afraid that no one. Damn, Scott McNulty! Why am I <laughs> reading this book? I only thought that during that first chapter, and then I got over it. So, oh uh, well, I'm glad. Yeah, because it's a little bit out of what we have been reading for uh, the book club. It is, and that uh, and that's why many of our book club members have <laughs> bailed on it. Apparently, They're, I think that's true. It left their comfort zone. Well, we know who the strong and the weak are now, don't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It turns out the guy that never reads is one of the strong. Turns Who saw out. that coming? It's a plot twist. It's the incomparable plot twist of the century. Irony! Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Incomparable Podcast. Until our next book club, uh, goodbye. Goodbye.